Hello, and welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Today's episode is an important one for all of us cyclists who share the road with fast-moving, heavy motor vehicles. Many of you will be familiar with Megan Hopman, the cyclist lawyer based in Golden, Colorado, but serving cyclists across America. Megan has represented over 160 cyclists in their individual legal cases and has provided counsel to other lawyers and to cycling groups and other organizations. Megan is not only a legal expert on cycling and the rights of cyclists, she lives the cycling life, commuting to work on her bike every day and racing at an elite level in multiple cycling disciplines. Let's just say Megan is the real deal. She knows what she's talking about. And in our discussion today, she offers a ton of tips on staying safe, what to do and not to do if a bike car crash happens to you or someone you are with, what insurance you should carry, and much more. This is information you need to have if you are riding your bike on the road. All right, let's talk to the cyclist lawyer, Megan Hoppen. All right, well, Megan, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Yes, I appreciate you making some time for us. Of all people, I imagine you are super busy. You are really well known in the cycling community. I know for sure in Colorado and perhaps elsewhere, but for the benefit of our listeners who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Megan Hotman. I am known as the cyclist lawyer. I'm based in Golden, Colorado. That's the headquarters. I do practice in other states, as you alluded to, and we do handle cycling cases across the country. And uh, my practice, as it probably sounds, we exclusively focus on cycling cases and making cycling safer for everyone. Yeah. Well, that's great. I am really tickled to have you on our show today. It's a nasty topic, this business of how dangerous it is for cyclists out on the road. You've been in the middle of it for over a decade um, uh, with, with your own uh, law firm helping cyclists in this area, haven't you? That's correct. We just celebrated 11 years in March. So yes, we've been at this for a minute uh, and have handled over 160 bike cases at this point. So we've seen quite a bit. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. And it, you know, just reading the news, it just feels like it's worse than that even. I'm lucky that I have not actually been hit. I say lucky because I've had a lot of close calls. I've been pushed off the road by a city bus one time. That's so actually the only contact I've had with a vehicle, but I didn't crash or, or anything. Uh, but Glenn, I know, has uh, spoken of his bad luck uh, over the years. You've had some incidents, haven't you, Glenn? I've been hit twice, actually. Um, both were minor, thankfully, but um, one could have been, I could have been easily killed by, by this truck. But anyway, I was lucky and I've had a lot of close calls, of course, also. But I have to rack that up to just, you know, racing skill and experience means you know how to get out of the way quickly. And uh, so I've saved me many times, but I think the roads are getting less safe for cyclists. That's my feeling, at least. Yeah. What do you think, Megan? Are the roads getting safer? Is it just more hearing about it more in the news? So the national statistics, I think the best way to start answering that question is simply to tell you and our friends at People for Bikes uh, will corroborate this as well, is that nationally on a daily basis, there are more miles being traveled by bike than ever before. So we have more people riding and we have more distances being traveled by bicycle than ever before. And the percentage of cycling fatality and cycling cases has gone down slightly. Um, 2009 saw about a 3% dip from the year before. And so the percentage of people riding relative to the percentage of negative interactions is actually slightly decreasing. 
However, as you noted, the prevalence of social media and the heightened attention being given to these things means that we are seeing more of it um, in our feeds and in our headlines, perhaps than ever before. And also, I think just the visibility of cycling in general, particularly in this cycling boom that we are seeing from COVID and how cycling was one of the few things not canceled last year. We saw like a 10x increase in bike sales. As we all know, bike shops still can't get inventory. Uh, I worked at a bike shop temporarily last year to have something to do and help out. And I have never seen such demand for bike stuff as I did. And so you also have an increased number of what I would say are less experienced riders out there um, on bikes who may not have really learned what the safest ways to do or really what the best routes are to travel. They're giving it a shot for the first time, which is great because during COVID, we also saw a decrease in vehicular traffic out there. So it was a really smart and safe time to start riding bikes. Uh, As an aside, when Colorado was locked down in let's just call it April and May, those eight weeks for the first time ever, my law firm went eight weeks without a single incoming call of a cyclist who'd been injured. And so to me, that was really telling that our philosophy and theory is true, is that when you put more people on bikes and you have fewer people in cars, it does become a much safer world in which to ride bikes. That's interesting. Now, since the lights have come back on and the country has started to resume pre-COVID normal, Um, We are seeing what I would consider an elevated level of aggressiveness and recklessness on the roads. I'm reading statistics about things like um, substance abuse is up 400% since since COVID began. There's an increase in anxiety, depression, mental health issues that people are managing. And it's it's also in um, conjunction with sort of being thrust back into full speed life and everyone's in this even bigger hurry to get where they're going. Here in Colorado, we're seeing throngs of people from other states relocating here. So we have these very rapid adjustments in traffic flow that are happening. You know, places that used to be, quote, objectively safe to ride are suddenly feeling very busy, very trafficy. So to go back to your original question, I wouldn't say that it is per se less safe to ride on the roads these days. I would just say that the dynamics and the nuances are evolving and changing in this post-COVID reality that we're living. Well, so I've got a couple of things that I'd like to touch on. In particular, I want to get to what cyclists can do to get justice if there, there is a, yeah. a problem. Glenn and I did a, a podcast with the It Could Be Me founder, Great. Uh, Trini, Trini Willerton. And, uh, and she talked about the struggle that she had with the person who had uh, injured her. Right. Uh, and I think that that's really quite common uh, when you read the articles that the, the police often give the, the driver the benefit of the doubt. Um, so anyway, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah. I'd also like to, you know, just kind of get your general thoughts on what seemed to be the danger situations uh, you know, like if we were talking about uh, shark attacks on the beach, it would be, you know, don't go swimming when you've got a cut on your leg or, you know, sure. there would be some advice on things sure. to avoid. And then the last thing I'd like to touch on, and then I'll let you get into it, is cyclists have rights, but they also have obligations. Mm-hmm. You know, there's rules that they have to follow also. And, uh, and I think that it would be worth talking about those and making sure that people really are doing what they should be, you know, maybe they need to go beyond that 
in order to be safe because they've got so little margin for error. But there's some minimum things which are just the law. And if they're not following that, then their opportunity to get justice is going to be greatly diminished, I assume. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. Where should we start then on the list? Do you want to start with that first one or would you like to sure. start with the last one first? Whichever strikes you fancy. Okay. <laughs> well, let's start with the last one first, which is just the the obligations and the um, the rights that cyclists have. And from there, we'll go into how best to seek justice. And then I think we'll finish with some of the best practices. Um, and so right. certainly, please just interrupt me if you feel that none of those areas are being fully addressed or if something I says, say prompts a new question. But in general, um, so we wrote a book about this. I summarized all 50 states' laws as far as what they require of cyclists and what they require of motorists. Also summarized all the What was case the name law. of that book? Uh, it's called Bicycle Accidents, Crashes, and Collisions. It is a book published by Lawyers and Judges. That's the publishing company. It was intended to be a legal resource for lawyers, judges, law enforcement, um, but it also is is certainly written for bike advocates and cyclists in mind. You can get it on Amazon. It's a hardcover. It's it's legal, so I wouldn't call it scintillating reading by any stretch. <laughs> but but uh, I learned a lot through that process. And so the biggest takeaway is that in all fifty states, the law does say that cyclists have all the same rights and all the same obligations as the operator of a motor vehicle. Okay. So if your listeners hear nothing else, it's this: it is that cyclists are not a second class road user group. They do not have a subset or additional layer of obligations beyond what they would do if they were driving their car. At the same time, they do have the same obligations. So some of the major, most obvious ones are, and for most of us who ride bikes, we do also drive cars. So I think it's also important to draw that correlation that we don't, um, you know, I don't know why some cyclists choose not to follow the rules when they ride their bike, and yet they're very obedient motor vehicle operators. I haven't yet closed that psychology gap. I'm certainly open to suggestions on why that is. Um, perhaps the anonymity of thinking you can get away with it on a bike. I'm not sure. About well, maybe they've been riding a bike since they were seven and they didn't know what the driving rules were. Maybe, maybe. But um, so things like when we drive our car, we have to have lights on the front and back of our car when it's dark from sunset to sunrise. Same thing applies to us on our bikes. We have to have a white light on the front, a red light on the back. We also have to be reflective to the sides. Basically from sunset through sunrise or anytime visibility isn't clear, that should be obvious that cars can't avoid us if they can't see us. Yeah. Something that many riders are adopting for themselves is to run the daytime lights on the bike just to increase their odds of being seen. I want to just be perfectly clear because these podcasts um, may eventually at some point try to be used against me in a case. I want to be completely clear that the law does not require cyclists to use daytime lights. That is at the rider's option. Okay. Another example of something we have to do when we're in our car is use turn signals. We have to let other road users know what the heck we're doing because we all can't stand having to try and read someone's mind. If someone in a car suddenly flips a right-hand turn with no blinker. Most of us behind them get kind of ticked off about that. Similarly, on our bikes, we do have to signal our intention to turn. It's got to be about 100 feet out. The law does say that in order to safely operate your bicycle, you can put your hand back on your handlebars to complete the turn. So you basically signal your turn, and then you put your hands back on your bike. It all goes back to that same thing of we don't want to ask other road users to have to read our mind. You know, they are not omnipotent. We don't want to put people in places where they're having to guess 
what we're doing. We don't want to seem unpredictable. And I think that is one of the biggest complaints motorists have about cyclists is just that they see us as being unpredictable. So the more we are communicating our intentions and looking at people and saying, I'm turning this way. And do you understand that I'm stopping or that type of body language, you know, that really goes a long ways towards just making sure that everyone is on the same page. Um, You know, obeying speed limits, posted um, road signage applies to cyclists. So the cases where that comes up might be coming down something like Lookout Mountain or Deer Creek Canyon, where we can easily hit the posted speed limit on our bicycles. And the fact that you do or don't have a bike computer showing you speed is not a reason why you can exceed the speed limit. You can absolutely be pulled over and cited for speeding. The biggest difference between a legal infraction on your bike versus in your car is that you cannot be docked any driving points for a bike-related violation. But the, the fines and everything else are the same. Okay. And the reason for that is that you don't have to have a driver's license to operate a bicycle, so they cannot deduct driving points when you're on your bike. Um, you know, a lot of those things that are very common, one of the big sort of tension areas right now is that cyclists do have to obey stop signs and stoplights. and. Yeah. There was a new law passed in Colorado a couple years ago called the stop is yield law. And what it means is that cyclists may treat a stop sign as a yield sign and a red light as a stop sign. And the issue with that law as it presently stands is that the legislature passed recommended language for each city or municipality to adopt, but it is not a statewide law. And unfortunately many cyclists misunderstood that and thought, Oh, I'm now permitted to run the stop sign or to run the stoplight because of that law. The reality is that there are only a certain number of jurisdictions that have adopted it, uh, like uh, Summit County, Aspen, Dillon, Breckenridge. The city of Thornton recently adopted it. But pretty much the state as a whole for cyclists, we have to obey stop signs and stoplights the same as we do when we're in our cars. And as you can imagine, that is one of the biggest areas of motorist and law enforcement consternation is that cyclists, you know, you always hear the refrain of sure, we'll follow the rules around cyclists when they follow the rules of the road and they don't, and they stop acting like they own the place. Right. So it is incumbent upon us as cyclists to make sure that our etiquette and behavior is lawful um, just as we're asking yeah. our road users around us to be lawful. Just from a getting along with each other point of view, acting like a responsible citizen has got to be helpful. Indeed. And I can't tell you how many positive experiences I have with motorists where I will just wave or smile or if I'm at my bike and we're stopped at a red light or a stop sign. If someone has their window down, I often have passengers say things to me out of their passenger window that are friendly and kind, like be safe out there or have a great ride or whatever. And so just those little brief interactions really do go a long way. Um, when I wave at people, when they wait for me and when they could have turned and they choose not to, and they give me, you know, the space to do what I'm doing or whatever. And I wave, it's just like acknowledging those um, moments of kindness and the way I always compare it is, you know, when you're on a two lane road and the right lane merges into the left and you're the car in the left and you allow some space and you wave the car in front of you to merge over, how much do we all love it when that driver puts their hand up in their car and waves to you behind? And I get a little disappointed when they don't. I actually get a little bit miffed when they don't. Okay. So then why would we, when we're riding our bikes, not show that same display of, of like, you know, hey, yeah, technically I had the right of way there, but I also really appreciate that you just gave me grace or space or room or you demonstrated patience or what have you. So I wave, I'm very communicative when I'm riding. 
So in general, that's what the law requires of cyclists. It's really the same set of rules that we obey when on our vehicles with very, very, very few exceptions. Uh, you don't have to carry a driver's license, but you do have to have some sort of ID on you in case you are um, confronted by law enforcement. You have to at least be yeah. able to tell them who you are. Um, so, so besides being subject to fines, if you get pulled over for not obeying the laws, what happens when you're not obeying the laws and you get hit? So, I mean, obviously the burden then is on the individual who has caused the collision. And so that can go one of two ways. Either you, the cyclist can be cited for causing the collision, which is going to be total insult to injury. Cause you're going to also have to deal with the fact that you're probably pretty banged up. Um, or the, the officer law enforcement may decide that you are jointly at fault and may cite both parties. But the reality of how that pans out is that the insurance company of the driver is going to tell you to go pound sand because if you're at fault, if you have a clear law violation, there's no re recovery for you. And in fact, you may be picking up the bill for the damage to the vehicle that you caused with your, your illegal conduct if, if that actually occurs. So yeah, it, it is a thing that cyclists can both be cited and be the injured party if their conduct contributed. And, and it's the same as if they were investigating a car on car collision. If one car didn't have their lights on and they get struck by another car who didn't see them, you know, the failure to have the lights on is a contributing factor. Same thing with cyclists, you know, failure to signal all kinds of things. Uh, yeah. yeah, it goes both ways. Well, let's get into the, the justice part. I mean, so, sure. you know, let's say the, dry, the cyclist did do it right and they still were injured by somebody who broke the law or wasn't careful in some way. How do you get justice in that case? Because the, the police officer shows up the cyclist is unconscious, you know, or right. discombobulated in some way. And the, the driver says, oh, they came out of nowhere. They turned right in front of me, you know, whatever they always say. And the police officer says, oh, yeah, okay, I believe you. Right. Totally a real, not unfortunately, super hypothetical situation that you're describing there. Uh, there are a couple things just from the word go that many cyclists nowadays are choosing to ride with cameras on their bikes. Um, I'm a big fan of GoPro and I understand Garmin has a, a camera out as well, you know, made in the USA, really reliable products and, you know, having video footage of course can go a very long way in terms of proof. You can't argue with video footage like that. Uh, right. Sometimes you will have dash cam that other motorists happen to be running in their vehicles. We've had that come up more often than you can imagine where another person who happens to have dash cam in their car catches the whole collision. So that's an interesting thing. Uh, many intersections do have traffic cams. So sometimes you can get your hands on that footage. Uh, hopefully there are witnesses who will say what they saw and will talk to the law enforcement and, and back up you know, the cyclists. Oftentimes, as you indicated, the cyclist is carted off from the scene to the emergency room more quickly than the law enforcement can get their statement. So when they do come to or when they are feeling better, assuming that they have recollection of the event, I always encourage them to contact law enforcement, make sure that statement gets put into the police report and part of the investigation. And that can be done after the fact if need be. Um, so those are some of the big ones. But yeah, where you have a car and a cyclist, no one else around, cyclist unconscious or doesn't have memory of it. It can be tricky. And, um, you know, law enforcement, I will say in Colorado has done a really spectacular job, especially here in the front range. I'm very, very pleased with how law enforcement is responding to these collisions in general. And I do think that they're evaluating them very fairly and just factually, they're treating it as two road users 
to vehicle operators. They are not making concessions or exceptions for the fact that there's a cyclist involved, which is a good thing. They're evaluating it as though one car did something to another car and they're coming out with the right conclusions generally. So that's a good start. When you get a good police investigation and a positive um, result in terms of a citation being issued to the driver, that's a really, really important start to the cyclist case. As you referenced Trini's case, hers started out on the wrong foot and then fortunately was able to kind of get flipped on its head and, you know, the, the true story panned out. But it is a it is a bit of a more of an uphill battle if you start off with the cyclist either being cited or no citation being um, issued to the driver. Just because the police officer finds what they find doesn't mean that you don't still have a claim against the driver's insurance company. So you always have two cases. You have the criminal case that flows from the traffic citation as a result of the police charges. And then you also have the civil case, which is the cyclist versus the driver. And typically you're suing the driver's insurance um, company. So there's always these two cases proceeding in tandem with different elements, different burdens of proof, different players in the game. And one doesn't necessarily influence the other, but it certainly helps if the criminal side is is unfolding in a way that the, like I said, that the investigation was done well. Um, so that's a really good start to justice. And then what we're seeing right now in kind of the, the soapbox that I'm on these days is that district attorneys are not prosecuting drivers as they should be. Mm. So law enforcement's doing a great job here in Colorado. They hand off the, the charges that they've determined the case should that the driver should face. Those are handed to the local city prosecutor or district attorney. And their office then is tasked with prosecuting those charges against the driver. And this is really where we're seeing the system fall down right now. Um, and, and unfortunately, not just in Colorado. Uh, and I know that part of that is that because the criminal justice system is quite overwhelmed, and then COVID really created this additional backlog in the court system. But none of those excuses are satisfying to me when we consistently see these deals given to these drivers who are killing and maiming cyclists and forever changing their lives, where they're getting two and three point driving violations, $100 fines, couple hours of community service, like nobody's losing a license, nobody's going to jail. I just saw today that uh, professional cyclist Ben Sontag down in Durango was hit and killed last year by a driver. Apparently that driver was not jailed, didn't lose his license. He was just picked up again for another crash. Terrible. So the system consistently bends over for these people. And my, my personal rant on this is that until district attorneys start truly punishing drivers, taking licenses, putting them in jail, even if it's for a short time. I mean, can you imagine the three of us, if any of the three of us got picked up and had to go spend a day or two days or three days in Jeffco jail, I I would be so scared and so straight and narrow for the rest of my life. I mean, an experience yeah. like that would shape me forever. Or if you took my driving license away from me for 30 days, I'd probably be okay because I ride my bike most places. But there's a couple places that it would really alter my freedoms. And so yeah. why aren't we taking away this privilege to drive? And in fact, we have a great law on the books in Colorado, the Vulnerable Road User Statute passed in 2019, intended for that very thing. If a driver's convicted of careless driving to a cyclist, they're supposed to lose their license. The 12 points are supposed to be automatic imposition. And yet the district attorneys are not charging the law. They're consistently giving these plea deals. So the drivers maybe get 10 points or 11 points, but they keep their license. And so the justice aspect of that is completely missed because 
that law was written and passed with the intention of drivers losing licenses and God forbid may have to use a bike for a period of time to figure out how to get around. I mean, that's true fair justice. Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. I I hadn't heard that. I'm sorry to hear it. Well, so uh, a couple of things related to that, both of which I I found on your website, which is really a tremendous resource. Um, Thank you for making that available to people. And we'll put that a link to that in the show notes. You had talked about, sort of rules of the road, you know, if there is an issue, do not do these things like social media and uh, talking to the driver and, and things like that. I mean, can you share some of these tips for people? Sure, sure. Um, crash advice in general. So we're really talking about these moments and hours and days and weeks just right after a collision. And if it doesn't happen to you, and we hope that it doesn't, this also is something that I would want people to share with respect to their teammates and their friends. Um, because un- sometimes unwittingly, we can do something to harm someone else's case. So, and I don't have the medical background to back this up other than I know that this is 100% true is at the scene. We do not ever take an injured cyclist helmet off. So just for starters, we do not remove the helmet. Um, You try not to move the person if they're in the roadway, unless they absolutely have to be moved. You always call 911. I still am hearing about people just exchanging information with the driver and, and, and you, you have to get law enforcement involved to get a good report. In very few occasions, should the ambulance ride be waived? I mean, very rarely is a cyclist actually okay. I've talked to people who have ridden home completely concussed, had no idea how they got home, had no recollection of the ride. I've had cyclists with fractured pelvises. I mean, bad injuries that that passed on the ambulance ride. I've heard these stories too. Yeah, we all have, right? Like adrenaline kicks in. And and the expense of the ambulance transport is a real thing, but I'm telling you that for purposes of the cyclist getting not only the best possible case outcome, but more importantly, the best possible recovery and rehabilitation. Oh, sure. Yeah. And brain injury is such a big deal. I mean, you can't, you're going to get back on your bike and maybe crash again because you're you're dizzy or something. I mean, you're really taking a chance. And that does happen. That does happen. So um, so then, you know, um, at the scene, if you are the person's friend or, or if you happen to witness a collision, let's just say, let's, let's put you at the scene, but you are not the injured cyclist. You are taking photos of the car. You're taking photos of the scene, license plate. People are making sure that the driver is not trying to flee. Um, that scene will never look that way ever again. And sometimes the police can't even get there before things and people are moved and bikes are moved and stuff like that. So, you know, try to document everything as much as you can. If you just happen to be a bystander, a good Samaritan, trying to get names of witnesses, that type of stuff. It's really, really important because once it's gone, it's gone. Um, and then, you know, do making sure that someone is advocating for that cyclist and making sure that law enforcement does contact them for their side of the story is really important, especially if it's your teammate or something. But then as you talked about, social media has really become a major, major problem in just personal injury cases in general. And what happens is that cyclists or their friends or teammates will post something like so-and-so was in a collision or I was in a collision, I was hit by a car, you know, but I'll be fine. Or I broke XYZ thing and I'm this, that, but I'm home from the hospital and I'm going to be okay. Or so-and-so's teammate is going on and on and on about the facts of the collision and they're posting it all over the internet. Well, what anyone is doing when we're posting social media is we're creating new evidence in that case that cannot be taken down or altered. 
at the risk of it being treated as spoilation of evidence by the other side. So instead of just letting the facts of the case speak for themselves, we've now injected this whole new set of evidence issues about what people saw and what they think and what they remember and photos and comments and things that can be taken out of context. And when it's online, it's publicly accessible and the insurance companies have teams of people that are online looking for just such a thing. Yeah. And the way it works is you don't usually know exactly what they're going to use against you until you're in like your closing arguments of trial or something. And they'll whip out a photo of the cyclist, you know, two years later having a vacation on the beach or something, or it's, you know, it doesn't even have to be crash related. It's just that anything put online can be damning and it, and it virtually never adds value. So it's just best to go dark if you're involved in something like this. And we do have that policy for our clients. We impose a social media blackout because I want to focus on the merits of the case. The last thing I want to be doing is wasting my time and energy managing this kind of crap about who posted what and when and was it taken down and why was it destroyed and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You can research the ways that social media have ruined people's cases. Very deserving victims who have made seemingly innocuous posts and have had to actually like give their settlement money back or have then been sued themselves or it's just, it's crazy. And we all know that juries go online even though they're not supposed to and do their own research. And so anything you put on the internet is a potential landmine. That's a big one. Yeah. The other thing that I saw on your website, and, and I don't know whether you're um, legally able to speak to it, but if you are, please, what, insurance if you're a cyclist <laughs> what insurance should you have for on your vehicles which will help you on your bike that's a great question i absolutely can speak on it and in fact i just posted that on instagram today so your question awesome. is very timely i thought you were going to ask me which company which i can't really say even though i have some very specific opinions but um my instagram post on our cyclist lawyer instagram today i just outlined what coverage cyclists should have on their auto policy and it Great. is important to note that your auto policy does apply to you if you are in a, a collision involving a vehicle. Um, now, if you're on your mountain bike and you crash yourself out, or if you just tip over on your bike yourself, you know, really no coverage is going to apply there. But if you are, say, uh, on a bike path and you are in some in collision with another cyclist or with a pedestrian, that would be your homeowner's or renter's insurance, not auto, but injuries to others basically outside of your car. And then when we're specifically talking about a collision with the vehicle, uh, you have uninsured, underinsured motorist coverage, which is a waivable coverage. So people should check their policies to make sure that they didn't waive this. Mm -hmm. UM, UIM is for your and your family's benefit. It is what happens if you are hit by someone who either doesn't have any insurance, flees the scene, so hit and run, or doesn't have enough insurance to cover your damages. I always tell people to pay for the highest UM limits that they can afford without being insurance poor. So if you are the primary breadwinner in your home and you have a, a, a lifestyle that you are responsible for, for you and your family, and something very catastrophic happens to you and you're no longer able to work or earn a living in your family and you are all relying on, on that, your UM limits should be pretty doggone high. Because in Colorado, a driver only has to have $25,000 for limits to get their registration. Yeah. In Arizona, it's only $15,000. A lot of times drivers don't have insurance. 
So for cyclists, it's really important. You can also get an umbrella, which then stacks on top of all of your coverage. So you could have nice high UM plus the umbrella. So now you're starting to get into the millions of dollars of coverage for you for about another $300 a year in premiums. Yeah. The other main thing on your auto policy is called medical payments coverage, MPC. The default amount is 5,000. It is also a waivable coverage. I would encourage everyone to get as much med pay on their auto coverage as they need to meet their health insurance deductible. So anymore, a lot of us have a higher deductible health insurance plan just as things have gone in that field. Yeah. And so if I have a $7,000 deductible for my health insurance. So I have $5,000 med pay coverage on my auto and med pay is just no fault coverage for any medical expenses. So it, even Great. if I hit the car, it still kicks in. But that's a really nice gap filler between zero and my $7,000 deductible. Because once yep. I can use that $5,000 to pay my co-pays and deductibles, then my health insurance is going to kick in and do what it's supposed to do. And, and health insurance is obviously a no-brainer for every cyclist. You definitely should have it. Excellent. Well, that's great. Good tips. Thanks very much. Sure. And so then the last thing I think that we were left with was this: your thoughts on what are the dangerous situations and when should cyclists be... You know, and maybe it's just they should be vigilant and and you know take more responsibility than they legally are obligated to, just because of how vulnerable they are. But you probably have seen so many situations. What what common things tend to crop up? Yeah. So I was hitting a bike lane two years ago, and we've seen an increase in bike lanes, uh, not just in Colorado but nationwide, because it's definitely the least expensive bike infrastructure to add. You just have to widen the road a little bit, put some white paint down. We do tend to see that bike lanes decrease tension and issues with motorists because everyone knows where each other is supposed to be. So, you know, motorists in general don't have an issue with cyclists as long as we're in the bike lane or as long as you know we're in our spot, if you will. The downside to bike lanes is is just that cars do still cross them to make right-hand turns or what have you. And so um, when I was hitting a bike lane, I wanted to add some extra legal protection to those of us riding in bike lanes in Colorado. So last year we got a new law passed that says motorists shall yield to cyclists riding in the bike lane. And that sounds super obvious, but we didn't have it before. And what that basically means is it shifts the burden to motorists that if you hit a cyclist in a bike lane, you're automatically at fault, more or less. You're, you're presumed at fault. And that wasn't the case. I, yeah, you're no, right. I would have no. like, of course, that. but you're saying no. That's amazing. No. So what we're trying to do is say, hey, like you're going to get ticketed for that, even if there's no collision or contact. If you fail to yield to a cyclist in a bike lane and an officer sees it or something, you're going to get cited for that. What we want people to do is get in the habit of you must check that, that passenger side sure. window. You must check your side mirror. Basically, anytime you're about to drive your vehicle across that line into a bike lane, you better be on high alert because it's not going to be the cyclist's fault for whatever happens next. Do you know if that covers the dooring thing, you know, where you open your door into the bike lane? Great question. It certainly should. And also dooring itself is a citable offense. So it's more okay. common that that happens on the driver's side. That is a citable offense in every state, um, but certainly if it opens into the bike lane, same thing. Um, so to your point about sort of best practices, just knowing that we are unfortunately seeing an uh, increase in these bike lane type collisions, most often happening is a driver's coming up to the right of the bike lane and then is making that right-hand turn and it's directly in front of or into a cyclist who's going straight through the intersection of the bike lane. 
Um, so the cyclist is doing everything right. And a car comes up behind him and whips a right. That's what happened to me. Car came up from behind me, turned right into me. Or the car has come from the opposing direction and they're making the left turn and they turn into the cyclist who's going straight. So one thing that people can do is just to note that it is not a legal requirement that simply because there's a bike lane, you have to ride in it. So if it's a crazier, busier intersection, or if you're just feeling like, oh, this, this could get a little dicey, you can come out of the bike lane and you can take the traffic lane to get yourself through straight through the intersection and then resume riding in the bike lane. And that is totally legally permissible and it can prevent some of those right hook dynamics that I'm talking about. Um, no question the nationwide statistics are that the bulk of collisions happen in intersections. So to your point about being on high alert, you know, as a cyclist, my, my antenna definitely go up when I'm approaching or in an intersection. They're just more dynamic in general. There's just more happening there. But we certainly have handled crashes on everything from quiet rural roads to busy intersections and, and everything in between. So sure. um, one of the other things I think cyclists really want to start empowering themselves with is taking the lane. Often we are trying to almost be too conscientious and courteous when we pinch ourselves over on the very right edgeway of the lane. We're trying to stay right. out of the car's way so that they can overtake us. And, and I'm not saying that that's a bad practice, but in Colorado, the law says you should ride as far to the right as you deem safe not as far to the right as you possibly freaking can or get over to make sure that cars have their way. No, it's as far to the right as you deem safe. And more importantly, if the lane is not wide enough for you to share with the car and to have that three foot buffer between you, if you ride too far to the right, you basically invite that vehicle into that narrow lane and try to share it with you. And that can be bad. So cyclists need to sometimes position themselves further into the lane, further to the left, or even in the middle of the lane to take the lane to discourage a car from trying to share it with you. An example, just last week, we had someone send us a video that he had coming down Squaw Pass. So he was running a rear facing camera on his bike. He's descending Squaw Pass. So he's at or close to the posted speed limit. And a truck is waiting behind him. And then you see it try to pass into the oncoming traffic. It nearly hits a motorcyclist coming uphill. It comes back behind the cyclist. And then I think the driver just lost patience. And so he just very, very narrowly misses the cyclist as he passes him. I mean, within mm. about a foot. So we called state patrol. We, we used the, the aggressive driving hotline, star 277. It's approved for use by cyclists with respect to aggressive and menacing drivers. So everyone in Colorado should know that that is an approved use of the aggressive driving hotline. And hopefully other states have the same thing. Um, he reported it. He gave the video to the state patrolman, to the trooper. And the trooper, after watching it, agreed. He contacted the driver. The driver, thankfully, said, yeah, that was me. And I, I remember that. And yes, I did that. And so he accepted the citation for um, violating the three-foot law. So that's an example of, you know, it was interesting, our discussion with the trooper, he was saying to me, well, taking the lane doesn't mean you ride in the middle of the lane the whole way down. And I was like, well, respectfully, sir, that's exactly what it means. It means taking the <laughs> lane as long as a cyclist needs to, to avoid being smashed into a lane or being run off the road. Um, so where you're in a place where there's a wider lane and you have plenty of room for the three foot between you, great. A lot of drivers in our state do not know about the three foot law. And a lot of them don't know that you can cross the center yellow line to give a cyclist three feet. So they feel kind of stuck between the yellow line and the cyclist. And then they start getting frustrated. So even if it's a no pass, you can cross that center yellow. 
Okay. As long as it's safe of oncoming traffic, as long as it's safe. So if, okay. uh, but giving the three feet is mandatory. It is not optional. It's not just when you feel like it or just on the quiet country roads. It's every single time overtaking a cyclist must give them three feet. And um, New Jersey just got a three foot law or safe passing law um, posted. It's, it's a thing in about two thirds of our state. So it's, it's, an, it's pretty normal. Great. So other best practices I would say around just um, group rides can be one of the biggest areas of motorist and citizen complaint and law enforcement complaint. I have personally, I decide to only do group rides where there's maybe six or eight tops of us and where I'm with riders that I am very confident we can ride very close two by two or we can single up quite quickly where I'm with people that I know we are not sort of scattered all over the road that yeah. if I were a motorist behind my group, I would feel confident and I would feel safe passing my group. So, you know, be selective with whom you ride and also be very conscious about your group ride and how it is unfolding. The nature of a group ride is that it is a social event and we oftentimes get really involved and in, in engaged in our conversation. And it's the same reason we don't want people texting and driving. It's that you are not as focused on what you're doing. So group rides are totally legal and you can be too abreast. That's totally legal. I would just say to cyclists, give yourselves the best chances of having a safe ride by just really staying focused on what you're doing and save the extensive chatting and socializing for when you're stopping for coffee and stuff like that. Right. And maybe police each other, remind each other if totally. somebody's not paying attention. Yes. I definitely agree with your comment about policing ourselves, policing one another and yeah. really holding our cycling community uh, accountable because when one or two of our cycling community behaves badly, it really can and does reflect poorly on all of us. And, and sure. I do hear that refrain from motorists online in the comments and, you know, legislators and law enforcement that, you know, when I see cyclists acting like they own the rules or flagrantly breaking the law it makes me think that all cyclists act that way. And I really start to just assume and treat you like that, you know, as a, as a group, um, which is interesting because we don't do that with motorists. We all know people who don't drive well, or we all see motorists do bad things. And yet we don't lump that into one giant, you know, all motorists are terrible, but right. people definitely do that with cyclists. And, yeah. um, and I posted earlier this week, the sign that's at the base of squaw. So in the context of this case, I was just telling you about with the truck passing. I posted the photo at the base of Squaw Pass that says minimum of three feet to pass cyclists and cyclists may take the lane, I think is what the sign says. I posted that wow. on my Facebook account. I don't know what happened, but we've had over 20,000 interactions with that post. And some of the commentary got so vitriolic and angry. And this group of sort of anti-cycling folks chimed in and, and the, just the tone of it consistently is, We'll follow the rules for you when you all decide to start following the rules. I see cyclists blow stop signs and stoplights all the time. I nearly got hit when I was walking last week by a cyclist who ran a stop sign. You know, it's that kind of narrative. And I'm sure that some of those things are true. Uh, and so I, yeah. I just would say it's up to all of us to really ride cleanly the same way that we would in our cars. And it brings right. me back to that original point. Why do people behave more poorly on their bikes than they do in their cars. And I do think it's because they perhaps perceive that they are anonymous or um, incapable of being reported because you don't have a license plate or something on your bike. I'm not exactly sure. But um, anyway, 
you know, we, we all yeah. need to be lawful on our bikes. It really is important. It really does matter. When you were talking about how the people were saying they were using the bad behavior of the cyclist as an excuse for bad behavior of the driver, that That's right. of course is the wrong thinking that That's the right. driver should be cited and the cyclist should be cited, you know, when they're breaking the rules, totally the laws in particular, and they would certainly be held responsible. Totally the cyclist agree. had hit the pedestrian, then they would be responsible. If there was That's financial right. damage, they would be responsible for it. And that has been um, the tone of my work with law enforcement. I've had this amazing opportunity and we started this back in like 2013 where I've now educated almost every single law enforcement office along the front range, basically from Fort Collins all the way through the spring. So they bring me in to do their in-service trainings and some of their Great. sort of cycling law updates. I just recently worked with Fort Collins police, um, teaching them about some of these new laws that have since passed. And that's exactly the message that I'm saying to them too, is look, when you see cyclists doing bad things, please issue the citations. Even if right. it's just a warning, even if it's just an educational stop, you know, we are not out here ranting that you only ever ticket motorists and that cyclists are always hundred percent in the right. I know that that is not the case. I am objective enough to understand that is not the case. Um, so yeah, we definitely want cyclists to understand that they have to follow the rules and they too can be cited for failing right. to do so. All right. Well, so as a wrap up, you, you said essentially intersections is where most of the danger is and cyclists should be aggressive in using their rights to take the lane in order to try to be as visible as they can. And I suppose they should try to wear bright clothes and, you know, and I, and I often will sit up in my seat so that I'm a bigger person on my bicycle so that I'm more visible as well. And, and, and I don't know whether there was any other situations that uh, you wanted to highlight. You know, um, in the context of the death cases that we've handled, and as everyone is well aware, Gwen Inglis, dear friend, was just hit and killed in May. Right. You know, doing everything right, riding in a really wide bike lane, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I mean, 0% fault to her for anything. We have an impaired driving, driver coming up behind her at very high speed, striking her. Um, the Terry Vogel or Chuck Vogel was the cyclist who was hit and killed in 2019, was very publicly involved with that case. Um, again, we have a cyclist who goes out at 630 in the morning on the 4th of July, thinking he's going to get his ride in before traffic gets too bad. And he is hit from behind by an impaired motorist who flees the scene and is later apprehended. You know, a couple of the other really most catastrophic cases we've been involved in have unfortunately been this struck from behind nature. And you can imagine why that is. It's because the car is at a much higher speed in those dynamics. And also the cyclist, to Glenn's point earlier, has no opportunity to take any evasive action whatsoever. Yeah. So um, I don't have any specific advice about that other than to just say that is the dynamic where we see the worst outcomes. And so um, whether you are sort of head on a swivel the whole time you're riding, whether you and your riding mates are really conscientious about calling, you know, car back just so that everyone Maybe is aware. Maybe use of mirrors. Whatever makes you feel more aware, whatever, I'm not going to make any suggestions that would ever be held against me as saying that this is what cyclists should do. But okay. I have been experimenting with the Garmin Varia, which is a rear light radar combination. Oh, yeah. And, and I was curious, does this actually heighten my stress when I'm riding or do I feel more empowered with the information it's giving me? Um, you know, the question is, if I had three to four seconds to try and veer off the road, would that even be enough time for me to do something about it? I don't have the answer to that. I'm just saying I'm experimenting with this new technology. My wish 
if I could have my wish, it would be that Garmin would add a camera to that device so that it was a three-way, it had three purposes. And I think that would be really powerful because then the camera would also reflect the radar's perception of the car speed. I think that would be for in terms of after a collision has happened. Yeah. So anyway, I don't have any specific advice about that other than to say that is definitely the dynamic and the context that is most worrisome to me in terms of the worst outcomes. Right. But certainly just really paying attention. I don't ride with headphones. I am 100% alert when I'm riding. When I'm riding with other people, conversation is at a pretty low minimum. When we're riding, you know, we, we are focused on the task at hand and then we save our socializing for when we're stopped and just really being cautious about the routes that we choose. And, you know, we're, we're making the best choices that we can, even though oftentimes, like you said earlier, um, many of these things are out of our control. So just doing what you think will make you safest is important. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds like good advice. Let, let me ask you about the headphones. Is it legal for a cyclist to wear headphones while they're riding their bike on the road? Great question. And I should have talked about this earlier when we talked about the obligations. So the law in Colorado basically says the operator of a motor vehicle cannot have earbuds in both ears. So if you're driving a car, you cannot have both of your ears obstructed. And that's for good reason. We need to be able to hear everything around you. Right. Um, and so essentially it permits you to have one in and one out. So okay. if I if I interpret that strictly to also apply to cyclists, then I would say same concept. Um the question now has arisen, well, what about these, um, these new headphones that are bone conduction headphones? Right. So they're not actually in your ear piece, in your earbud. So supposedly you can hear ambient noise around you. I've not worn them, so I don't know. Uh, but again, I would just be cautious about the distraction piece of that. Sure. And there's some question about what's legal. I mean, if, if it's on both ears, I guess, right? Right, exactly. Okay. So, you know, well, just really treat your job, I mean, your, your, your bike ride as a specific focus, even if you are out doing intervals or whatever, the, if you're running errands, I do a lot of commuting by bike, you know, whatever you're doing, I would like you to focus on your bike ride the same way that you focus, you know, when you're driving your car. And, and on that note, I'll just close and say, you know, we cyclists are really ranting and raving about all these distracted drivers and people on their phones. And so I, I mean, no question, that's a huge contributing part of these collisions that we're seeing is people just simply aren't watching the road. Um, so it is really incumbent upon those of us who ride bikes, when we are either on our bike, or especially in our car, we need to not be driving distracted. We yeah. cannot sit here on our little, you know, soapbox and ask the rest of the world to behave such a way while we ourselves are are not holding right. ourselves to the same standard. So awesome. let us be the ones who set that example, put the phone in the back seat and uh, don't touch it while you're driving. Awesome. Megan, that was really helpful. Thank you very much. Cool. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Glenn, did you have anything you wanted to add? I'm just so thankful for you that you're out there because you, you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe one of us might need your service of Sunday. I hope that's not true. I, but I hope you don't either. Yeah. I mean, it's like I've had I've had so many close calls over the years that I can't wait till I go to a place where there's no where there aren't there's bike trails everywhere. So uh, I'm getting to the point now where I ride the bike trails almost exclusively because I'm tired of riding the roads and dealing with totally. traffic the way it is. So and on that note, let me also just say um, bike advocacy is up to all of us. So there are people who are paid to be advocates, you know, Bicycle Colorado does a tremendous job and that's right. a nonprofit that, that specifically does that bike Fort Collins, another great, uh, advocacy group. You know, I live here in Jeffco and golden. So I take part in the bike Jeffco meetings almost monthly. I highly mm -hmm. recommend people do that. 
Golden right now is redoing some of its bigger intersections. They're seeking input from cyclists. There's always some opportunity to buy bite off some small piece of bike advocacy. And so if you are out on a bike on the roads or trails, you know, availing yourselves of those opportunities, we really do make a call to action that we want everyone to find the part of bike advocacy that turns you on the most and get involved in that because it, it's so important that it's not just the same few people doing it. I, I see the burnout in bike advocacy and I, it's yeah. really important to me that we keep that all of us bear some of that and, and do our part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's going to take a long time for it to get to where it's perfect. So we all have to push it ahead right. a millimeter at a time. And one of the biggest things I've learned in just the last few years, especially as I've worked more in the legislative side of things and getting laws passed and then really pushing these district attorneys on things is that our elected officials really do notice when constituents make noise about stuff. Um, our elected legislators notice when their constituents weigh in on things and our elected district attorney is a position that the popular vote determines and our judges are also retained by popular vote. Yeah. And so cyclists, we also need to be aware of those things and utilizing our votes to get people in or out that support our cause and also, um, weighing in when we put out a call to action and we say, Hey, we need everyone to contact your legislator about this bill. It takes two seconds. Most of the time, people for bikes and Bicycle Colorado have those emails teed up to auto send. All you have to do is plug in your name. Um, and we all look at those things in our inbox and we were like, oh, somebody else will do it. I don't have time. And it, it's, I can't tell you how important it is for the critical mass, like for the, the numbers to be big for those things yeah. to happen for us. So we all need to weigh in on those things. Democracy at work, right? Amen. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Megan, thank you very much again. You bet. I'm going to put some uh, contact info for you. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to put some links to parts of your website on the in the show notes because uh, there's really some great information there and people will cool. benefit from looking at it. Great. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Right. Sure thing. You all have a great day. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion about road cycling safety with Megan Hotman, the cyclist lawyer. And thanks to Megan for taking some time to help us out. You can find more information about Megan in the show notes. And if you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.